hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women really players. They have their exits, and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first, the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail, unwillingly to school. And then the lover, sighing like furnace, with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. And then a soldier, full of strange oaths, and bearded like the par, jealous in honor, Sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, and fair round belly with good cape and lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws in modern instances, and so he plays his part. And the sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank and his big manly voice. Turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in a sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. William Shakespeare, as you like it. Hello and welcome to Working Over Time the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Please join me in giving a big hand to Aiden for the wonderful opening, which was intended to just put you in the frame of mind for today, because we're heading to one of my favorite places ever, Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in London. That's right, we're talking about the life and work of Elizabethan stage actors with our guest, Clive Greenwood, who in addition to being a museum heritage educator, happens to be an actor himself. Turns out that learning lines as a Shakespearean actor was a lot more than that. For starters, in those days, they rarely even had a complete script to work from. The stage that Shakespeare wrote for had to be a uniquely dynamic and versatile space. Put simply, It had to be an entire world. And was it ever for the actors who trod it? We are extremely fortunate. Uh, 
please welcome Clive Greenwood. He is an actor, museum and heritage educator who specializes in costumed historical interpretation or living history. He's plied his craft at major historical attractions, including the Tower of London, Hampton Court Palace, Kensington Palace, Museum of London, and the Golden Hind. Clive is a guide with Hidden London, which delivers tours of London's disused tube stations for the London Transport Museum. He also, as I mentioned, is a tour guide at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. Currently, Clive is writing a play with actor Jason Wing, titled The Ballad of Crookback and Shakespeare. This deals with the writing of Shakespeare's Richard III and Shakespeare's relationship with the master of the revels, Sir Edmund Tilney. Clive, welcome. Thanks very much, Karen. It's lovely to be here. Can I just ask you to tell our listeners and me who Sir Edmund Tilney is? Well, Sir Edmund Tilney was the master of the revels, and that was a position at court. It was initially started by Henry VIII, but by the time his daughter Elizabeth is on the uh, throne, he is actually probably one of the most important men in the theatre. Um, ah. but by then, the post, it's not really, it started off really organising revels, masks, uh, plays, things like that. But Edmund Tilney, he's also the censor of plays. So in order uh, to get a play put on, on the, uh, in the playhouses uh, at this time, it had to be passed by Edmund Tilney. And uh, he would only licence a play that he didn't think was treasonous or anything like that. So he was an incredibly important uh, official at court, and it's the beginning of censorship in the theatre. I was just going to say, you know, what is it for language and for sexual content? But having seen Shakespeare performed many times, it wasn't that. <laughs> I mean, you could you could be as violent as you wanted. I mean, one of Shakespeare's earliest plays, you know, Titus Andronicus, is a bit like a horror play, really, with you know Lavinia having her tongue cut out and her hands cut off, and the Queen of the Goths, Tamora, gets her children baked in a pie and she eats them. No, but what, what you would get yourself into mm. trouble for was um, anything that could be considered uh, treason. Because, of course, Elizabeth, uh, she's the last of the Tudor monarchs. And as a lot of historians, and in fact, the, well, the, first, the first artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe, Sir Mark Rylance, he did actually say, towards the end of her reign, Elizabethan England is a police state. And uh, censorship, and there's a huge spy network as well. So for a writer like Shakespeare, you've got to be very careful what you put. Otherwise, you'd end up in jail. <laughs> Let's get the 101 for this time period. If you can just ground our listeners, please, in uh, you know, what was kind of going on in London at this time period and any particular features relevant to our discussion of the life of an actor at the Globe Theatre during this time. Yes, of course, Elizabeth, she's the last Tudor monarch. The House of Tudor will die out with her because she doesn't have any children. So she comes to the throne in 1558. And this is where England really starts to expand. Uh, the idea of the British Empire starts at this point. Elizabeth has her own magician at court, her own conjurer, Dr. John Dee. He's the Queen's own conjurer. And he gets this idea, this vision that England should become a great imperial power. There's a new wealthy merchant class as well. And of course, Philip of Spain, he's been married to Elizabeth's half-sister, Mary Tudor. And uh, he tries to become King of England again in 1588. 
he'll send the Spanish Armada to uh, attack England, to remove Elizabeth from the throne and put himself on the throne as uh, back as King of England and make England Catholic again. So you've got um, this area, there's still the fear of uh, a Spanish attack, but you've also got at this point as well, science is starting to become um, more known. Sir Walter Raleigh will start his School of Night and people are trying to understand the natural world a lot more. Uh, so England is now a, a very powerful country. Elizabeth is the real icon uh, as well. But of course, she's, she's aware that uh, there are a lot of people who don't want her on the throne. The Pope's uh, said that she's illegitimate and there's still a price on her head for any Catholic that is prepared to kill Elizabeth. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a time of, of great change. Is, is there anything in particular about this particular atmosphere of progress and change and growth coupled with uncertainty that, you know, sort of spawned the Shakespearean actor in the form that it emerged at this time period in London? Well, it does. I mean, one of the key areas, of course, is one of Shakespeare's um, history plays is Richard II. And the key thing is that actors, they're considered to be a little bit like rogues and vagabonds. But they can't do too much about this because they're under the protection of powerful people at court, which we can talk about a bit later. But Elizabeth loves going to the theatre and she commands um, the actors to come and perform for her at court. And she commands that one of the plays is Richard II. But it's a very controversial play that Shakespeare's written because he actually shows Richard II abdicating the throne. And towards the end of her life, uh, she's accompanied a lot by the Earl of Essex, who sort of flatters her that she's still very young and very beautiful. And he really fancies himself as, as taking over. And Elizabeth actually bans the scene of Richard II abdicating ever to be performed. Really? <laughs> yeah. She said to Shakespeare uh, at court, she came to him and said, I am Richard II. Know you not that? <gasps> So in other words, oh. yeah, don't put that scene in again, because I know that people want me to abdicate. <laughs> that censorship in action. I love that. I love that story. I've never heard that. The, the fear always was treason. And one of Tilney's jobs is really to go through the plays and anything that could be considered. Um, and of course, it's not just Elizabeth, because Shakespeare continues writing into the reign of the first Stuart, uh, James. And uh, again, James is a man who's pretty paranoid. They try to blow him up in, uh, with the gunpowder plot as that's well. That's right, that's right. He, he walks around with a quilted jacket because he's always convinced someone is going to stab him. So uh, again, uh, you had to be very careful what you put. And Ben Johnson falls foul of him. He says that James has brought too many Scotsmen down to, because he was the Scottish king, of course, James VI was Scotland. So uh, Ben Johnson writes a play called Eastwood Ho, where he makes fun of all the Scots. Uh, and of course, Ben Johnson gets thrown back in jail again for a while, just to, you know, not for long, but James is just basically saying, you know, don't push your luck. <laughs> so that was a fantastic uh, introduction to the climate of London in general and the climate in which these playwrights were working. Let's now take our focus to the actors who would perform these plays in the Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. Could you start us out with one of these actors waking up to begin a new day? What's on their mind? What are they worried about? Uh, well, 
their, obviously their performance that afternoon because the, uh, the idea we get now, like a long run of a play, didn't exist in Shakespeare's day. They probably would be doing a different play every day. So they had a heck of a lot of lines to keep in their heads because there wasn't really enough people in London at that time. The population isn't big enough that even, say, a, a very popular play like Richard III, Shakespeare's Richard III, they can't do a really long run of it. And so what they will do is to uh, keep the audiences coming in, they'll do a different play every day. So the actor A different probably... play every day. That's like rep on steroids. Because they didn't all have a copy of the play or anything, did they? I mean, what, what was this process like? Oh my gosh. <laughs> How did they do it? Well, basically what you did was, if, if it was a new play, so say Shakespeare had written them a new play, uh, he would read it uh, to the, there's two classes of actors. There was the sharers. These were guys like Richard Burbage, who's the, the, the star actor of the Lord Chamberlain's Men, Shakespeare's company, uh, Augustine Phillips, uh, Will Kemp, the comedian. Uh, they're sharers and they've got 25% uh, ownership of the globe. Um, then you've got the, uh, some of the other actors, uh, they've got 10% uh, sharing as well. So they're sharers and they're the only ones who are. Uh, who come to the, the first reading and Shakespeare or the, the writer will write, will read the, the script out to them and then they'll cast it. Uh, they'll bring in some people, there's two classes, I'll say the second one, they were known as the hired men. So they were just bought in, paid a fee uh, for playing that particular part. And then what will happen is the scribe will write out your lines and you take them away and learn them. Because you never see there was the whole a scribe, script. so like a secretary who would a, a secretary, listen to the playwright reading the play and yeah. write it down, basically. Yeah. Wow. What would happen is the scribe then copies out your lines. You don't get a copy of the whole script. One of the worries for that was, you know, that you'd be tempted to take it to a printer and sell it to. Them. There you go. I've got Master Shakespeare's new script. So what you did is you only got your lines written out and just three words before. So you only got your cues and they were known as parts or sides. So you had to listen out on stage for those words coming up. Then oh you my knew to speak. So there was no- the first run through might've been a little rough, huh? There probably <laughs> wasn't, there was no run throughs really. Very little rehearsal because you didn't get paid for rehearsal. You only got paid for performing. So what would happen is you'd be given your parts as Midsummer Night's Dream, they say, you know, here are your parts. I entreat you to con them, to learn them. And then you'd go away and it was up to you to learn your part. Maybe on the morning uh, of the play, they would meet, try and stagger through the, 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 the play with everybody just chipping in because you're listening out for your, your cues. Backstage would have been pinned up the plat, which was the running order of the play, which would give you a bit of a clue. And there was an important person there called the bookkeeper. Now the bookkeeper would be on the script and uh, you know, in case like, the actors forgot their lines or there was missed cues or anything like that. As Shakespeare says, you know, he, he says the imperfect actor, who, like, like an imperfect actor who does not know his part. So uh, you then also, some um, luckless actor um, might be an apprentice. So if it was a play like Julius Caesar, they would have gone down to the slaughterhouse or to Smithfield, the market, and they had a lovely job in the morning. Uh, they'd be filling up animal bladders with blood, guts and entrails, oh. uh, which would be then sewn into the costume. So when an actor got stabbed on stage, blood rushed out. Uh, they used that, for example, um, in Julius Caesar. Um, then, of course, the, the, the tire master uh, in charge of the attire or the costumes, 
he would be laying out the costumes, um, getting those ready uh, as well. And as I say, they might try and do a, a stagger through. Uh, and then from about, because the plays were performed in daylight, of course, not about two o'clock in the afternoon. By about one o'clock, some, the actors, some of the actors were also musicians as well. So some of them might be out doing some drumming, uh, telling the audience that the play was on that day. One of them will be hoisting the flag over the globe, flying the flag to say a play was taking place. And you could see that over the river in London. So you'd know the globe was open that day for a performance. And then the people would start coming across uh, in boats, going across the only bridge, London Bridge. Uh, and then what, we, what would strike fear in your heart is when the trumpeter goes up into the penthouse of the globe, blows the trumpet uh, to announce that the play is about to start. And uh, then you're on, uh, perhaps with one stagger through of a rehearsal, um, or you may not even have that rehearsal because they might, Burbage might have said, actually, this, this new play is not doing well. Let's go back to, uh, well, let's do Comedy of Errors tomorrow. Can, can you tell the listeners about the Groundlings for anyone who, who doesn't maybe know um, as much about how the Globe Theatre was organized? It's a bit different from a modern playhouse, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we tend to say on the tours that we say going to the theatre in Shakespeare's day is like today going to a rock concert or a festival or even a sporting event. They sold food, uh, you could drink bottled beer all the way through the show. So the, the groundlings, which is what we very politely call them at Shakespeare's Globe today, they were the people that only paid a penny. So they would be the working people of London and they would stand and watch the play. Uh, they would be out in the yard and there would be over a thousand of them crammed in there. Uh, and as I say, we're quite polite. We call them the groundlings. But in Shakespeare's day, they didn't. They were known as the penny stinkards because they only paid penny a penny for their seat. And quite frankly, they stank. Um, <laughs> hygiene's not big in Tudor London, particularly for the working people. Uh, so Marston, the playwright, says, go to the public theatre and rub up against the balmy jacket of a beer brewer. So, you know, you might have somebody next to you who stinks of, of stale beer. Somebody else might be working in the slaughterhouse, have the distinct aroma of dead animals about them. Uh, somebody might even work in a tannery. And part of the uh, process of, do of uh, tanning leather is to actually use uh, dog poo, I'm afraid. So they would have, they definitely have a lovely aroma about them. Delicious. Uh, so the, 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 the groundlings were more known as the penny stinkards. So they, as I say, they literally paid a penny they stood and they uh, watched the play. And just to add to the aroma, they, the, the fear of plague was always present in Elizabethan uh, London. So they chewed garlic, which they thought would ward off the plague. <laughs> and they stank, their breath stank as well. So maybe you could explain for us the physical layout of the theater. I've been there, so I know what the yard means, but maybe some of our listeners can't quite visualize how the, the groundlings or the penny stick arts would have been in relation to the actors and the stage and, and also to the other observers? Well, I mean, the globe really looks like uh, it's based on a, the courtyard of an inn or a pub, because that's what the actors would have known. Because um, previous to the theatre, the first ever purpose-built theatre in London, James Burbage's one, and William Shakespeare's globe, actors did perform in the courtyards of inns. So the globe really does look like that. You imagine there's a wooden platform which is thrust out into this open yard. And uh, so the audience stand around and they stand on three sides. Uh, they're open to the elements. 
So if it rains, they get wet. Uh, the, the stage itself is covered over by the heavens where they can actually bring actors down on ropes if they're playing like a god, for example, uh, like Jupiter in Cymbeline. But you've got these people, they're just standing and watching. Then above them are the galleries. So you've got um, what they call bays just beyond where the, uh, the stinkards, the penny stinkards are standing. And in there people could sit and they'd, only, they'd pay tuppence, two old English pennies. So then you've got your seats. They're covered over. The next level up, again, like a coaching in, if you know what the, the, the idea they are coaching in. Then you've got the middle galleries uh, where people might be. That might be the new merchant class, you know, people who've made money out of um, trade. They might be able to spend tuppence and go there. Then on the sides, you've got the gentlemen's boxes, uh, with paintings on the wall. And that's, that's gentlemen. That's anybody who's got a coat of arms. They pay sixpence and... Then uh, at the very top, you've got the upper galleries. Now, the upper galleries were quite high up and they weren't considered always the best places to be because some of the audiences were, um, how can I put it? They were quite lively. Uh, the other thing on Bankside, there was lots of brothels uh, known as the stews uh, run by the Bishop of Winchester. So there we are. Yes, not a man that looked too deeply <laughs> into the requirement of holy office. And a lot of the girls used to, you know, would work the playhouses and they might take their clients up into the upper, into the upper gallery. So if you walked up there at the wrong time, you might see the wrong sort of performance. Oh, it's a bit more private up there. A little bit. Well, yes, uh -huh. if, it, if it was quieter, that's where they might go. And then you actually had boxes above the stage, which was the Lord's boxes, which although it was a pretty bad view, uh, because all you're going to see is the back of the actor's heads, everyone in the globe is looking at you. So we tend to call that Elizabethan Instagram. You know, everybody, <laughs> everybody is literally, it. you're looking at the actors, but if you look, look above the actors, there's all the nobility. And they've come to the theatre to be seen as well. Absolutely. So as Shakespeare calls it, it's a wooden O. It's a big wooden circle. And so you mentioned how uh, some of these actors might have had other roles, for example, uh, playing a musical instrument to draw in the crowd. Did actors have to sell tickets? Did they sell beverages at, a, at an intermission or anything like that? Were there any other roles for the actors beyond musicians? There, well, there's the all, all actors had to be multi-skilled uh, because, of course, Shakespeare has sword fighting in all of his plays. And a lot of the audience who would go, particularly the young men about town, they're known as the gallants. And the gallants have come there to see really good sword play. And they would applaud it. And they, they, they were aficionados of that. They might be thinking, oh, they're using sword and um, uh, cloak and dagger is one in particular. And um, each day at Shakespeare's Globe today, obviously when we're completely open again after COVID, we have sword fighting demonstrations. And so some of the actors would maybe be instructing the um, other uh, actors as well in the art of uh, sword fighting. They had to be able to dance. Each play ended with a, with a dance, a jig. Um, some were skilled at uh, making costumes. They would, it could be the tire masters uh, as well. The actual selling of the food, um, Richard Burbage was quite, a, he was quite a shrewd businessman. He let that out as a concession. So people- Oh, wow. Him. So concessions he, really yeah. have a deep history. <laughs> yeah, very much. I mean, Henslow, when he has the rose, he builds a, a pub onto the rose and lets that out to a man called John Chumley. So, you know, he's, he gives him the concession to do the food and drink at the Rose. And, and so the Rose is a, is a neighbouring theatre. The Rose was the, yeah, was the first theatre on Bankside. That's 1587, where Shakespeare begins. 
So yeah, the actors didn't really, they didn't have to sell the food and drink. Now that was, uh, that was more money for, uh, for Burbage because that's it, you know, that, that was quite a, a valuable concession to get. And how were actors cast? If a theatre company like Shakespeare's company, um, his and Burbage's, the Lord Chamberlain's men, they have a team of actors who've probably been working together for a long time. And there's quite strong evidence that obviously Burbage was always, he's the leading man. Uh, so he gets to play all the leading parts. So he'll get to play Richard III, he'll get to play Julius Caesar as well. Um, Shakespeare would, did appear in the plays. Um, they know he played Adam in As You Like It. He also played the ghost in Hamlet as well. And he's got, they have clowns as well, the comedians. Initially Will Kemp, so Shakespeare will write uh, funny scenes for Will Kemp. And that's to appeal to the groundlings a bit. And then he'll have the courtly scenes that the other members will, of the audience will enjoy more. So he would write to the strengths of his actors. And then we know that Will Kemp falls out with them. He gets into an argument. It's probably why Shakespeare says uh, in Hamlet's advice to the players, clowns who speak more than is set down for them. So probably Will Kemp just thought, actually, I'm not bothered about these lines. I'm going to put some more jokes in. And eventually oh. he leaves and they bring in Robert Armin who's a slightly more thoughtful type of clown. Um, he plays Feste, for example, in Twelfth Night. So again, Shakespeare um, would write to the strengths of the, the resident company. And some of them, of course, the younger ones, they were cast always to be women because no women appeared on stage. So he would write for the strengths of the boy players as well because they had to play some pretty heavy roles. You know, they'd be playing Ophelia, Lady Macbeth, Calpurnia, Portia as well. That would be played by teenage boys or actors who could speak in a very high-pitched voice, yeah. Oh, it's so interesting to, to think that typecasting was very much a part of what Shakespeare was doing. Yeah. And, and also, I love your example where he essentially is telling Kemp to, to get his, his act together. You know, you don't ad-lib quite so much, please. You do what's in the script. <laughs> that's it, yeah. As, as you said, that everyone thinks that that's, that's a nod to walk. Yeah, let, let not your clown set down more than is uh, writ for them. Yeah, because he obviously came on, you know, he was, uh, <laughs> he, 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 they probably couldn't get him off. He'd go, he'd go on and do a few jokes for the groundlings, right. you know. The old, wow. the old hook would be coming out from the, you know, the wind. The music starts. Well, and also I wonder, this sounds like it was really challenging to try to learn lines on a really rapid basis, you know, in, in a way that at least to us seems very alien. I mean, I've done a little bit of performing on stage and, you know, you get your dog-eared script and you, you have it under your pillow or whatever it is, but you, you have it to hand and you often have quite a bit of time to prepare. Um, you know, it's, it's almost tempting to wonder if Kemp was just not remembering what, what Shakespeare had set down when he kind of went off, off piste sometimes. It, it could well be. Um, I mean, obviously, he was a gifted comedian as well. So, yes, he probably did, as you say, did go uh, off-piste as well. But the, uh, that, that was where the bookkeeper came in, and the bookkeeper would, um, would prompt. And there is a company in London who've performed at the Globe, and they're called the Original Shakespeare Company. And what they do is they agree to do a play, and they will work exactly as Shakespeare would have done. So, for example, I went to see their production of King John, and they get given only their lines, and they go away and learn them. And, you know, everybody plays the game. You don't look at the whole script. So wow. you got used to seeing them on stage at the Globe, the original Shakespeare company. And you got used to, to a voice coming out of the wings because they were being prompted. 
And of course, we don't know. I mean, we, 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 there's only one sort of or two contemporary references to plays at the time that somebody's seeing them. So yeah, it's probably more than likely that the uh, the bookkeeper had quite a prominent part of prompting if they if they did uh, go off piste as well. So yes, yeah. you, you, you can imagine that they must have had. Uh, it's I think they call it the hippocampus, the part of the brain that remembers things. Like taxi drivers apparently have a very well developed hippocampus because they have to know um, so many cities and things like that. So you would imagine yes that they must have had to have an incredibly retentive memory to remember all of those lines yeah. oh yeah but you didn't oh, yeah. you weren't really encouraged to create the role what you did was you just learned it and there's a there's an, an anonymous play called the return to parnassus and they actually put richard burbage on stage and he says to a, a would-be actor i think you have a good voice for uh hieronymus in the spanish tragedy he says watch the way i act it and then copy me Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, that's that's pretty different, I think, um, totally from different. the way we understand, uh, you know, great theatrical work of today. But Burbage himself, of course, he's interesting because they actually said he's he's one of the few actors. He stays within character and he doesn't come out. You know, he, he doesn't just recite his lines and then sort of look out, look out in the audience to see if there's any nobleman watching him or anything like that or, or you know, um, any, of, any of his fans in. Um, he says, he, the actual quote was, he said, Burbage, never failing in his part, even when he is done speaking, with, but, but with his looks and gestures, maintaining it. So he actually is probably the beginning. He's the star actor. He's probably the beginning of what we might even today call a method actor. I was just going to ask yeah. you, how, would you compare that to what we, yeah. What, the idea, the idea of method acting or, or Burbage being a star? <laughs> Uh, method acting, method acting, and maybe just share for our listeners what that what that is. Hmm. Well, method acting, I think, really comes. It's an Ameri it's, it's comes from an American concept. I mean, Stanislavski from the Moscow Arts Theatre, he comes up with the idea that an actor stays within the role, and then of course you have the actor studio in New York, Lee Strasberg, uh, Marlon Brando. I was just going to say Marlon Brando is like the one that I, I think the, comes to mind quickly for an American. Ultimate, the ultimate. Actor, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's very unusual that that the fact that somebody's quoted Burbage as saying that he stays, he never fails in his part. So he's actually becoming the character. It's not just, yes, I'm Richard Burbage, and everybody knew Burbage in London. He was a, he was a big, you know, he was a star. But he's saying, look at me, I am now Henry VIII. Oh, that's really fascinating. And I suppose, in a way, uh, speculating completely, but thinking about the challenges that would have been posed by this method of, of scripting or lack thereof and, and the reliance on the bookkeeper, you know, maybe it just really helped to kind of get into a flow and a zone there. <laughs> you know, the language of Shakespeare to our ears sounds so precise. Uh, uh, you know, I, I just wonder, um, I just wonder how possible it was for people to get through it all without just a little bit of, of, um, of improv now and again. Well, that's the thing, we don't know, because of course the plays were never set down in Shakespeare's lifetime. This is the whole thing. Uh, there's no extant, you know, uh, copies of them. Uh, they were either lost or destroyed. Is that so? No, yeah. I did not know that. So, you, you know, if you come to the Globe, you will see down in what we call the Underglobe, you'll see our copy of what is known as the first folio of the plays. So the plays are not put together in a big book. Uh, until I think 1623, so it's about seven or eight years after oh, Shakespeare's wow. death. 
So John Hemming and John Condell, who are two, um, sorry, Hen um, John Hemming, Henry Condell, two of the actors, they get together nearly seven years after Shakespeare's death and decide to publish the plays. And they get Ben Johnson, who of course was his friend, to write uh, an introduction. So when we do sessions about the first folio at the Globe as well, and we have a printing press there, we, we show people how the Tudors would have printed it. What you have to remember is, the way they were probably remembering it, they were probably getting actors together nearly seven years after Shakespeare's death to try to remember. And like you, you've done performance as well, Karen, and you probably know what it's like. If you do something again, you might suddenly six months later go, oh, do you remember when we used to do that bit before? That's when <laughs> Yeah, yeah, or, or, do, yeah. And then he'd, he'd do a funny walk there and then he'd say this. So in fact, what we actually are getting as the first folio of Shakespeare's plays is what probably under Hemmings and Condell, the actors could remember nearly seven years down the line and looking at what was left of the foul, what they called foul copies, which were his first drafts. So they probably all just sat around a bit like we're doing now and just sort of said, can you remember what came next? Oh, he did this, didn't he? He did this, he did this, he did this. Oh my gosh. And and maybe some of those dog-eared copies of the individual parts that we talked about earlier, you know, people pulling them out, well, I've got this and this is what it says in my copy. <laughs> Absolutely. And they would suddenly go, so you, you've got things like in the drunken porter scene or something like that in Macbeth. For all we know, that was Will Kemp's jokes. Maybe that was his stand-up routine. Uh and also, the, the, the printing was quite difficult in the Tudor period as well. So on occasion, they could run out of certain letters. So sometimes uh, the printer might have gone, oh, actually, I haven't got a H for that. That'll do. So the printer sometimes changes the words as well. Uh, or the compositor or the typesetter. Because they, you know, they, they just didn't have that particular letter to hand. So you've even got the compositors sticking their two penneth in as well about it as well. So what we have got, the first folio, may not have, we, we know for example that Richard III went through, it was, it was Burbage's great star role that everyone remembered him as, um, went through about three or four different versions. So all uh, we've got. Who would have guessed that Shakespeare's plays, the first actual fully written and published form of them would have been utterly bootstrapped? Yeah, Ben Johnson had had his plays published in a folio and I think it was because Hemings and Condell just felt that Shakespeare should be remembered. And, you know, he, he, he died in 1616 and that's it. They said, actually, no, you know, he was our friend. We're going we're gonna to remember him. And the only way they could do it was try and get everyone together. I mean, the Globe was still going. The Globe stood until 1642, the second Globe. But they had to sort of sit around and try and say, right, how did we do this one? Do you remember what he used to do there? And that's how they did it. And that's how they put together the first folio. I love the idea of these actors coming together and doing that. So let's talk a little bit more about who these actors were. We've talked a little bit about what they did and how they did it, but you know, for example, who was allowed to become an actor? You had mentioned it's just men and boys, but what else? What else was the restriction on who could act on stage? There wasn't really a restriction as such. I mean, if you showed uh, ability for it, you, you, you could do it. I mean, you know, Shakespeare himself is just the son of a, a glove maker in Stratford-on-Avon. Um, what would be highly sought after, particularly for the boys, was um, because puberty is, uh, was a lot later onset in Tudor times, because they could speak with a high-pitched voice for a long time, they, they, were, they would be sought after. Um, younger boys that could pass um, as uh, women as well. Um, obviously, a good speaking voice, um, good at sword play or being prepared to learn. 
maybe a singer, maybe uh, uh, able to dance a jig um, as well. We don't know too much about some of the background. We do know about Burbage um, in particular. So, yeah, I mean, really, if you've got a knack, it's like today. If you've got a knack for it, then, uh, you know, you've either got it or you haven't. Well, that for sure. But actually getting in the door, was it as hard then as it supposedly is today to make success on the stage? I, I say that that way because I've certainly never tried it. But it-, it, was, it was difficult in as much as it wasn't considered a respectable profession. Um, the only reason that the actors were tolerated in, in London, even at the time of, you know, um, Shakespeare, uh, is because they had the patronage of noblemen. And that's why Shakespeare's company is called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. He's a very powerful man at court. So um, the, you've also got Lord Strange's men, the Admiral's men. So basically, by having a nobleman as your patron, that got you out of sticky situations. You know, you weren't allowed to tour, for example, unless you had the permission of your patron. And okay, so these are individual the, companies of actors that yeah, you're talking about now. Yeah, okay. individual And it wasn't a state, if you were looking for a stable profession with a good income, again, you wouldn't probably go into acting because the th- any sign of plague, it's a bit, uh, <laughs> a bit appropriate for today, um, they would close all the playhouses. Like the theatres, of course, in London are still shut at the moment because of COVID. Uh, right. They were worried about the spread of plague. So the theatres could literally be closed on the orders of Sir Edmund Tilney and the Privy Council at the drop of a hat. And the reason why Richard Burbage's father, James Burbage, opens the very first purpose-built theatre called The Theatre, didn't, didn't have to have a focus group to work that one out, um, he actually builds it outside London of its day. He builds it in Shoreditch, outside the city walls, because the Lord Mayor is the most powerful person in London at this time. Elizabeth, the Queen, she's above everybody, King James as well, but the Lord Mayor really rules London. And they were the beginnings of the Puritans, and they hated theatre. They said mm. that uh, people who went to theatre were lewd, idle, naughty, and vagrant persons, and that actors were sturdy beggars deserving to be whipped. So uh, that's yeah. very colourful language, fitting of very, a theatrical yeah. discussion. <laughs> well, the, 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 the Puritans absolutely hated the theatre. So I always say to uh, American visitors at Shakespeare's Globe, that's at the point when I apologise and say, I'm so sorry, but eventually we gave up with the Puritans and we sent them over to you. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, to be an actor, it wasn't wasn't considered a respectable profession. And that's one of the reasons why women were not on the stage. When was it that women finally were allowed to perform at the Globe Theatre? Well, women never appeared at the Globe. Um, The Globe... didn't last long enough. Now, the Globe is demolished in 1642. The, the Globe burns down um, on the, the first Globe burns down on the 29th of June, 1613. But they, they rebuild it very quickly. And then in 1642, the Puritans are in power in London and they don't rebuild it until the third Globe. Uh, after the Restoration, when King Charles II comes back to the throne, after our short period as a republic under Oliver Cromwell, he gives a royal charter called the patent, the royal patent to Drury Lane and Covent Garden. And he says he does not feel it right that boys are dressing as girls on stage. But what he really means is when I go to Drury Lane, I want to meet nice looking I want to see ladies. I (laughs) want to meet Mel Gwynn. But the bizarre thing is, officially 1663, with the the granting of the royal patents to the Theatre Royal Drury Lane and Covent Garden. But towards the end of the Puritan era, when Cromwell's still in charge as the protector, they have to start 
putting on plays because the apprentices start rioting and running amok in London because there's no plays for them to go to. But they put on ones that they say are very moral or improving. So they did one with the catchy title called the, um, There's the Cruelty of the Spaniards in Peru and the Siege of Rhodes. And they do know that a lady called Catherine Coleman in 1658 is the first time a woman has appeared on stage. Uh, she appears in the Siege of Rhodes. So there is this, um, uh, and they, they said they didn't think it right again, but they thought it was you know, immoral for a boy to dress as a girl. Uh, but officially under Charles II. And no, no, no women um, in really what we would sort of think about that they Shakespearean actors at the Globe Theatre. At court, yes, women. I mean, King James, uh, his wife, Anne of Denmark, she loves amateur theatre. She does lots of plays, uh, and what they call masks at court as well. Henry VIII meets Anne Boleyn at a mask where they're doing like a, a, a performance, probably mind really, and they all, you know, they play very stock roles, um, like courtly love, uh, perseverance, that sort of thing. So they would do shows to amuse themselves at court, but it wasn't considered respectable for a woman to be on a public stage. What kind of living could an actor earn? You, you mentioned it wasn't the best living possible, but you know, could they live on an actor's wages? If you landed to become a sharer, then yes, you could. Um, because if they felt that you were really a sufficient use to them within the Lord Chamberlain's men, then they would uh, promote you to be one of the sharers. And remember, they're taking between 25% um, of the profits. The other actors who they chose to be sharers are getting 10%. So if it's a really popular play, they're doing pretty well. The hired men, they might get up to six shillings, which wasn't bad. And they might sort of say to them, well, actually, we're not going to need you now for three more weeks because we're not going to do Macbeth again for three more weeks. And were they like extras, for... these hired men? Yeah, the hired were men they... were literally just brought in for one, for that production. And they didn't get the, the perks, which was to take the lion's share, if you like, of the profits. I mean, the sharers also, they had to cover any um, outgoings. I mean, they had to pay for the maintenance of the theatre, of course, as well. And if any of the actors were fined, which they could be, um, for example, for wearing their clothes outside, um, they, uh, they'd have to pick up the fines, which could be up to, in some cases, £20. Um, but the idea was that, the, that, the sh that to be a sharer, yeah, I mean, William Shakespeare becomes a very wealthy man. He owns the, he owns the biggest property in Stratford-on-Avon, eventually, a new place. He owns property in London as well. And that's because, really, he, he wrote plays that people wanted to see. The plays were popular. The other writers, Marlowe, Nash as well, Ben Johnson, they brought their plays to the Lord Chamberlain's men. They were popular writers. And they, the sharers, they were taking a pretty reasonable percentage of the box office. So sharers, yes, you did well for yourself. Hired men, not so much. And so in terms of the overall administrative structure and, and business structure of the theatre, what, how did the sort of remaining 65% get divvied up? Well, it was it was sort of that you had um, the two the two Burbage brothers, uh, Richard, the star actor, and Cuthbert, who he was the business manager. Cuthbert was the money man, so he totted everything up. He he dealt with all the admin. They took twenty five percent each, so that's fifty percent gone, and then the other ten percent went to okay. Shakespeare, Augustine Phillips, Will Kemp. Uh, later on, a guy called Lawrence Fletcher is brought in, 
very strange man. He's called the English comedian, but no one knows anything about him. And there's just, you know, he's brought in on specific orders of James, King James. And many people think he was actually just there to report back to James to make sure that his, because by then Shakespeare's company is called the King's Men. And they're the King's own theatre company. And they think Lawrence Fletcher was just there to report back to the King, but they're not up to anything seditious. Oh, or a bit of a spy. One of those yes, he's, he was. Okay. Again, again, very little is known about Fletcher, but there is, if, if you read quite a few of the history books about it, there, are, there is this whole thing, this map that he appears from nowhere. Huh. And he's particularly requested by James. And he says that he's run theatre companies in Scotland, because James is a Scottish king. But there is also this theory that he was sent down just to just to keep an eye on my lads, you know, my my king's men, make sure they're not doing anything too seditious. Um, so then the so they're, they're taking 10 percent each themselves. Um, but you could, of course, if you did well, you could get a, a greater percentage um, as well. But the, the smart money, I mean, the, 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 the people like Philip Henslow, who ran the Rose as well, these are business guys. They've come into this. It's like the early days of the movies in, in Hollywood. A lot of people like, you know, Carl uh, Lemley and uh, Adolf Zukor. Uh, these were European businessmen that realized the movies were, were, were business. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're business guys. They're running the place. Yeah, so it's not so much about the joy of the performance. It's, it's well, a, no, an I opportunity mean, of, to make money that they see. Yeah. I mean, and certain ones, for example, like the, the Hope Theatre, uh, that was also plays on certain days and then on other days it was used for bear baiting so uh that partly must have been nice you know you come back into your dressing room and find that the you know there's, <laughs> bit of there's, a, heart, there's, a, there's a dead dog in there or something you know and <laughs> apparently it was it was the worst gig going to work at the hope because apparently the bears of the backs you know they used to keep the bears backstage as well so that must have been lovely you know and a bit smelly so they did okay. bear baiting two nights two days a week and plays the other you know so that must have been fun <laughs> Yeah, well, that, okay, that makes me wonder. So how, how did the Globe compare as a venue in terms of its physical layout and the kinds of productions that took place there and, and just, you know, really its reputation in general as compared to other contemporary theatres of the time? Yeah, well, I mean, there's no evidence ever that the Globe ever had to rely on being used for animal baiting as well, like the Hope as well. Um, there's, there's a contemporary drawing of the swan, which seems to show a platform, which meant that perhaps we, again, we know very little about them. There's only this one drawing, the Johannes de Witt drawing in 1596. Uh, so clearly that they were, they were a success as the Lord Chamberlain's men, not to have to rely on, you know, bear and bull baiting uh, as well. Burbage was the star actor, as I say, Richard III was his great role. He never, he, he was never allowed to forget it. Apparently, you know, there's the famous line, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Yeah. And apparently Burbage would walk into any tavern in London and people would start shouting, where's your horse? Oh. <laughs> so yeah, he, he never got away from being Richard III. When James comes to the throne, he then says, no longer are you guys going to be the Lord Chamberlain's men. You're now my actors. You're the king's uh, men. Yeah, that's so that like the made, ultimate endorsement, right? That's the ultimate endorsement. That's the Hollywood contract. So when you go to the Globe, you're going to go and see the king's own theatre company. And then by 1609, they're such a success that they can take a lease on the old Blackfriars Monastery and they can have an indoor theatre. And that's the game changer for them. Because now Shakespeare can let his imagination run amok. He can do things like the Tempest. He can have special effects as well. How did the hierarchy of 
you know, sort of administrative authority work, not, not so much the money. We talked about that, but, you know, who do the actors answer to? Ultimately, they would answer to Sir Edmund Tilney, the master of the revels. Um, and what would happen is if they wanted to do a new play, it would be the responsibility of one of the sharers, probably Burbage or Shakespeare, to make an appointment and go to his office, which was in the old St. John's um, Priory in Clerkenwell, and there read him the script. He would then go through it and take out anything he didn't like the look of. Um, there is a, a collaboratively written play called uh, Sir Thomas More, which Shakespeare writes along with Thomas Decker, Henry Chettle, and he says to them, I don't want this scene in here, because he thought it was encouraging attacks on uh, foreigners in London. And, oh. and he, he actually says to him, you will remove that if you do not, it is at your peril. So you answer to um, the master of the revels. If you overstepped the mark, then you could be summoned to court. And this is, of course, what does happen just before Elizabeth's death, about 1600. Um, they, they get a visit at the Globe from the Earl of Essex, and he's the Queen's favourite. And he says to, to Shakespeare and to Burbage, I want you to put on Richard II, but I want you to put back in the abdication scene. And they're going, well, that's, the Queen doesn't want I want it in there. And what he does, he fills the theatre with all his friends, and they all cheer at the abdication scene. And they're basically, he's got all his mates in to say, look at me, I should be, you know, I should be regent. Elizabeth should stand down. And the very next day he tries, his, he tries to rebel and it's a failure and he's taken and he's executed. And all the actors are brought in and are questioned, but they just simply said, we received a commission to perform an old play. It was just, you know, I was- We did what we were orders. told. Yeah. We did so it that, as written. Yeah. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> And in terms of the actors themselves, just back to the actors themselves again, um, was there, to your knowledge, uh, a kind of a collegial relationship within these companies? Or, were, you know, was Burbage always kind of having to watch his back? Were there always, you know, people nipping at his heels, wanting to be the leading man? Well, we, yeah, we do know that there was the, um, as I say, Shakespeare, yeah, Hamlet's advice to the players do not saw the air too much as well. That's probably um, notes to, to, yeah. There must have been, yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's gonna be always the young pretenders, but because Burbage was the, he was one of the business uh, men behind it as well. He could, he could keep his position there right almost to, to the end as well. But yeah, there were all, there would always have been, I presume, uh, you know, uh, actors who thought that they should be you know, that they could work their way um, up the ranks, uh, of course, uh, as well, yeah. And uh, then you've got these sort of strange things, like you've got the boy players as well, the children, uh, the children's company uh, over at Blackfriars, and they're just a novelty, and it's like young boys acting plays. And um, they're the, and for a while, they're like a real novelty to go and see these young ten, eight, nine, ten-year-old boys acting plays so that's the whole idea that uh, people are, you know they do that for a while we know that Shakespeare sort of has talked about the little asses the little eagles squawking away because <laughs> they're, they're see they're seeing their box office receipts going down because they're probably going oh, they're all going across to Blackfriars to see the children of the chapel you know maybe it was just a novelty or something like that but yeah there was this the, the, the boy companies as well 
But then somebody decided it was a really good idea to give them a seditious play to do called the Isle of Gulls. And uh, it was probably this idea that these boys, probably, you know, they just probably learned it by rote. And it was them making fun of politicians and everything like that. And they got closed down because they went, nope, I'm not putting that on. And that was Thomas Decker's The Isle of Gulls. So that gets the boy companies closed down. Well, Clive, um, you bring a unique perspective to this topic. As I said at the beginning, we haven't talked about it yet, but I'd, I'd love to kind of turn a little bit to your you know, experience yourself as a yeah. stage performer and an historical interpreter. You know, what aspects about acting craft then and now, you know, could you tell us about, you know, what's the same, what's different? Do you, do you wish that you had been around to see something in those days? Uh, there's, I mean, there's certainly some, uh, you know, you, it would, I suppose the immediacy of the, of the reaction from the audience would be the lovely thing. Um, you know, and bearing in mind in, in, in plays like Macbeth, you've got particularly the Penny Stinkards, the groundlings. These are people who genuinely believe in heaven and hell, and they would be terrified of the visions coming up from the bottom of the stage at the Globe, you know, the, the, the bit where you know, they, what, the witches show Macbeth his future. So you've got that immediate suspension of disbelief, that immediate... Um, reaction as well you know in dr faustus crystal marlowe's play people genuinely believe that devils are on the stage you know uh that's great what i probably wouldn't miss is everybody's done you know and if, if anybody's ever done stand-up or anything like that we all know the drunken audience you know that don't want to listen to a thing <laughs> um so yes i think the audiences could be a bit lively if they didn't like you and they used to say that if a play was hissed and booed it, that was it it was out and they go, we're not doing that one again, that the hunters ah. didn't like it. So they could turn quite nasty, your, your audience, if they didn't like it. They would, uh, you know, they were, you know, remember they, they, they've been, you know, they've been up since early morning because, you know, work starts at dawn. So by about two o'clock in the afternoon, that's almost the end of their working day. And they've got, so they've gone to the theatre, but they've stopped off for a few beers on the way. So they could be a little bit lively. You know, yeah, and you, and you had and as you said, they could continue drinking as they watched, right? So it, absolutely, and the great, you know, they, they, they'd have pickpockets working the crowd. Apparently, one of these ones, Will Kemp, apparently spots a, 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 a pickpocket. This is how he obviously step out of character, and points him out, drags him up on stage, and ties him to one of the pillars, <laughs> close, and gets the audience to chuck things at him. Uh, because he's been caught. Uh, well, that's a great bit of improv. I bet it's that right. would have been, you that would have gone imagine... over like gangbusters, right? <laughs> yeah, so they would literally go, get that bloke up here, ties, ties, ties him to one of the pillars and get people to throw things at him. But you can imagine Burbage going, get him off, I'm on in a minute, you know. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think Shakespeare might have made of modern theatre? You know, not just its sort of internal dynamics for an actor, but but also that the real thrall that star performers have over society at large these days? Well, I think he, he would recognize it. He would certainly recognize it because as you know, he, he knew that he, he, he recognizes all of the, um, the things of, uh, of Burbage. I mean, there's the famous story where, you know, because he's, he's so charismatic as Richard III, uh, this woman says to, to Richard Burbage, oh, you know, I'd like to meet you tonight, but will you come to me dressed as, as, as Richard III? And Shakespeare overhears this and gets there first. And apparently Burbage turns up at the house and Shakespeare's already there. And he says, but, uh, you know, and Shakespeare says, ah, but William the Conqueror comes before Richard III. So, yeah. <laughs> no. I, and uh, is that a double entendre, Clive? I think it's a double entendre, that one. <laughs> uh, 
but would he recognize yes he would recognize the the cult of celebrity because you know he he, he knew that you know all the, the the young gallants were walking around trying to act like his actors uh, on stage what is interesting he would recognize if he came and saw for example um Richard III, at, done at the Globe as it was last year, with a woman playing the part because we we, we cross gender cast. Yeah. Um, so he, but he would record, and she's wearing a suit. And what people forget is that in Shakespeare's day, if you'd seen uh, their actors on stage, they just wore ordinary Elizabethan clothes. So Julius Caesar would dress as an Elizabethan nobleman because they got their clothes. They used to belong to noblemen who would then pass them on to their servants who weren't allowed to wear them and would bring them to the theatre where they would sell them to the, t to the wardrobe master. So I think he'd probably quite like the, um, the idea that uh, you can take a story, which is what he did do. He, you know, we know he's in, he, he took inspiration from different stories, but then make them your own. So he, I like to think he'd approve. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I love that. It's, it's the message, not the medium, that really matters so much in the performance, in, yeah. in at least it, as I understand what you just said. And I, he I says the play is the really... thing. That's it. Yeah. And it's... Clive, why do you think it's important that we study a topic like this, or you know, discuss it as we are today? You know, wh wh why is it important that we examine the story of how humans have told stories throughout the ages? Well, because as you say, it's it's it, it's 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 a basic human thing—the the idea to tell stories. It also it's that thing of Chinese whispers, how a story can almost become accepted fact. So yeah, so you've got people now who are arguing. They say, well, there was that. There's evidence that Richard the Third, you know, was he a baddie? Was he a goodie? But everybody, I mean, Shakespeare's version of it becomes the accepted story that he was the evil um you know usurping king he may have been but a lot of the people like the richard the third society they say well we've taken shakespeare's word for it and he's basically you know he's reinvented our history looking at it now from a more modern point of view um the lots of questions that we always get asked of course is that uh, which people you know as you say because i know you're a big fan of, of shakespeare's globe they always, we always get asked the questions, where did the king and queen go when they came to the theatre? That's a famous one. The answer, of course, being they never came. Um, Shakespeare in Love is a brilliant film, but not great history. Um, so the fact that the, um, the monarch uh, would never go to a public theatre, the theatre comes to the monarch. Except when the globe you know, finally opens. And we should bear in mind, you know, you're, you're from the United States, that we have an American to thank that the globe is now back yeah, in London. Sam Wanamaker. It's right? Sam Wanamaker. Mm. Sadly, Sam doesn't live to see the globe open. He dies in 1993. But the lovely moment apparently was when they did open the globe in 1997 and the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh arrived. And in the opening, they had the actress Jane Lapatea come out as Elizabeth I. And she actually rode a white horse into the courtyard at the, or the, the yard at uh, Shakespeare's Globe. And she delivers Elizabeth's famous you know, speech although I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, yet I have the heart and stomach of a king, the king of England. And at the end of it, she was directed, obviously, and that was, the, the pictures of those are brilliant. It's the most upmarket bunch of penny stinkards you'll ever see, because everybody <laughs> in the yard is wearing evening dress. They're all in black tie. And Jane Lapatea bows to the queen. She was in one of the uh, gentlemen's boxes. She was directed to bow to the queen. And nobody expected what happened next. It was just pre the internet, so it doesn't go live, that Queen Elizabeth II, bowed back to Elizabeth I. <laughs> oh, 
and everybody just went, wow. <laughs> The globe is... I have goosebumps. I love that story. It is. <laughs> yeah, she, she got off. She stood by a horse. She bowed. And literally, the queen bowed back to her namesake. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, this was an incredible behind-the-scenes tour. Literally, I say this all the time about the topics, but this time it actually applies. A peek behind the curtain. I can't thank you enough. This has been really a fascinating conversation. You're very welcome. Vagabond. A noun. A person who wanders from place to place without a job or home. A drifter. Maybe even a grifter. Elizabethan actors were viewed as vagabonds. Ne'er-do-wells and not to be trusted. But this image would change dramatically when actors found a true home in the purpose-built theaters, such as the Globe, which emerged at the turn of the 17th century. Actors suddenly had regular paychecks, a supportive and increasingly respectable community, and for the lucky few, a real shot at stardom. The audience, for its part, became as passionate as today's theater mavens, devoted equally to the stories and to those who brought them to life on stage. Just like the classic plays I discussed with Clive, humanity's appetite for drama is indeed timeless. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Hey, listener. You can follow Clive Greenwood on Twitter at Greenwood underscore Clive and on Instagram at Clive underscore Green underscore Wood. To learn more about his work and his new play, The Ballad of Crookback and Shakespeare, co-written with Jason Wing. As always, we're on social media at Working OT Series with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Until next week. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. <laughs>